Well, good morning. morning. I want to talk with you today and uh, speak with you about Psalm 11. That's one of David's psalms, and it's a short psalm, so I'm going to just read the psalm at the outset, and then we'll go back and look at it in a little more detail. Psalm 11, beginning in verse 1. O Lord, I take refuge. O Lord, in the Lord I take refuge. How can you say to my soul, Flee like a bird to your mountain. For behold, the wicked bend the bow. They have fitted their arrow to the string to shoot in the dark at the upright in heart. If the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? The Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. The Lord tests the righteous, but his soul hates the wicked and the one who loves violence. Let him rain coals on the wicked. Fire and sulfur and a scorching wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous. He loves righteous deeds. The upright shall behold his face. Psalm 11 uh, is particularly important for our time. I think that what would be the theme, we could say is the theme of Psalm 11, is faith's response to fear's counsel. Uh, The context of Psalm 11, uh, we're not sure about. Uh, Some commentators say, well, it was when he was fleeing and hiding out from Saul. Others say, no, it was when uh, Absalom came against him. I tend not to think that either of those are accurate because in both cases, David did flee to the mountains. Uh, in addition to that, it was Saul, his, uh, Saul trying to find him and kill him. It was in those years of dealing with Saul that David learned what it was to take refuge uh, in the Lord. In verse 3, which says the foundations, when the foundations are destroyed, indicates there's some sort of terrible crisis ongoing that is beyond, in the minds of most people, is beyond human ability to deal with, and consequently he's getting the kind of uh, advice that's coming in, in the first part of the psalm, you need to flee like a bird to your mountains. Um, who are the counselors that are giving David this kind of information, this kind of counsel? Well, probably it's friends, uh, but it's possible it's his enemies uh, that are telling him that. And David's answer is in verse 1a, that is when I say a, it's the first half of that verse. David's answer is, I take refuge in the Lord. How can you say to me, and all these things flee, and the wicked are uh, strong, and the foundations are being destroyed. I take refuge in the Lord. Now, Psalm 11 can be divided into uh, three uh, groups or, or three sections. Psalm 11, 1b, the second half of that first verse, 2 through 3, would be described as the temptation that is being given to David. Psalm 11, 1a, and verses 4 and 5, is both David's answer to that temptation, and 4 and 5 is the statement of why he takes uh, refuge in the Lord. And then verses 6 and 7 are the ultimate result, uh, and we'll look at that just briefly. Uh, in 1939, 
at the outbreak of World War II, there was a tremendous Bible teacher and preacher uh, named uh, Arno Gabelan, and I'm hoping I'm pronouncing his name right. He was, he was born in Germany, but he was an American preacher. And he made the statement at the outbreak of World War II that verse 3, when the foundations are being destroyed, what can the righteous do? He said, Psalm 11, verse 3, is the burning question of our day. I would suggest to you that it is more so now than it was then. Uh, because what we see is foundations being destroyed all around the world. We just see chaos everywhere. And when chaos develops, what follows is totalitarian government because we cannot live under chaos. Uh, in America, we do, in the United States, we are seeing the foundations uh, destroyed, both as a nation, as a government, and also in our culture, uh, in our society. We see things collapsing. You're aware of it. I'm not telling you anything you didn't know. If you've been born within the last six weeks, you know what I'm talking about. Uh, it's, it's so obvious. And the reason we're having the trouble is because in the 60s we abandoned God and his scriptures. Um, now, I want to say this, that the problem occurred, began occurring before the 1960s. In fact, it had been building, the seeds had been planted for this in the 1860s. But we are beginning to see it outwardly uh, in the 1960s. And... Uh, for example, in the 1960s, the U.S. Uh, Supreme Court uh, basically ruled that prayer and Bible reading in the schools, in the public schools, was unconstitutional, therefore illegal. And that, in essence, was a government statement of turning from God. What the Supreme Court did not understand was that there is no such thing as a spiritual vacuum. If you remove God, somebody else comes in. And we are seeing the fruit of somebody else who came in, and it is getting worse and worse. In the late 50s, mid-50s, 1960s, early 60s, the sexual revolution began moving forward. Uh, again, there were seeds sown to that before. Uh, but initially, sexual promiscuity was cutesy and funny. At the same time, uh, pornography took on a more classy standard than the sleaze that had existed before that. Um, and the problem has been that the um, family has been ultimately the victim. It's caused no end of damage and heartbreak. Uh, in 1969, and 1970, every state in the Union except Louisiana passed the no-fault divorce statute. That has been incredibly damaging to the stability of the family. In 1851, the Texas Supreme Court was asked to rule that there shouldn't be reasons for grounds for divorce. Let them divorce if they want to. The Texas Supreme Court answered to do that 
would undermine the commitment on which marriage is based. It will ruin our society. Why, would they know, why did they know that? Because they operated under a Christian consensus. Uh, they believed the scriptures. Uh, now, in, in addition to, and here's the thing, folks. Found nations and cultures and societies, one of their foundation posts is the family. If the family fails, it's a question of time before the nation itself uh, actually fails. Uh, one of the things that we are also seeing is, and this has been in the last few years, a lot of criminal laws are not being enforced. And many people are getting away with doing things. We're seeing an absolute increase in violence. Uh, people are being gunned down in, in large groups. The answer is take away the guns. No, that's not the answer. That's not what's causing the problem. That is an instrument being used in the problem. Uh, we have governments, uh, frankly, that both federal and state, and I'm not pointing to particular uh, parties in this case, but frankly, that God set up governments to control and restrain evil. Instead of that, what we've got is governments promoting evil. Uh, and this is what Psalm 94 says. Um, verse 20, can, the wicked, can wicked rulers be allied with you, those who frame injustice by statute, they band together against the life of the righteous and condemn the innocent to death. Kind of reminds you of abortion decision, doesn't it? Uh, verse 22, but the Lord has become my stronghold and my God the rock of my refuge. Again, notice in a condition where the foundations are being destroyed, again, the psalmist uses the term uh, that God is the rock of his refuge. On top of that, uh, all that you're seeing going on, the chaos, the rage, the disagreement, uh, the separation of, par of, of people, uh, there is a rising hostility against the church uh, and uh, against Christians. Uh, and that is not just increasing in the United States, it's increasing uh, around the world. Uh, there's an interesting book I read some years ago called Dark Agenda by Michael Horowitz, and he was explaining that to destroy the Constitution, the leftists believe you have to destroy the church first. Uh, and that's what uh, their goal is. Uh, Psalm, uh, or, sorry, Isaiah 520, and it'd probably be up there, but Isaiah, and I'll summarize it a little bit. Isaiah 520 says, Woe to those who call evil good, and good evil, who put darkness for light and light for darkness, who put bitter for sweet and sweet for bitter. Sound familiar? Okay, uh, you, you stand up for what's right and you'll be canceled, as we say today in the current culture. Okay, well, have a nice day and let's go. Okay. As you see these things happening, I can tell you there are lots of people, Christians in particular, is saying to themselves, what can the righteous do? Well, I'll tell you what, David is going to tell us what the righteous can do uh, because there is something that the righteous can do. And David tells us, he says, in the, uh, in the Lord I take refuge. Uh, why? I want to look at these, are what I want to look at in the time we have left. Why does David take refuge? What does it mean 
to take refuge, and how do you do it? Uh, now, first, there's two parts to this. Uh, first is why uh, does he take refuge? He tells us this in Psalm 11, verses 4 and 5. What he says is, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes see, his eyelids test the children of man. Why does he take refuge? Uh, why does he take refuge in the Lord? Because for two reasons. First, because the Lord is in his holy temple. And the temple he's talking about is not in Jerusalem. The temple he's talking about uh, is in heaven. And one of the things that's uh, interesting when we talk about the temple is if you'll turn to 1 Corinthians uh, 6, uh, there's been an interesting adjustment to the temple. First... Corinthians 6, beginning in, of course, if I'm in 2 Corinthians, it's not going to say what I want it to say. Uh, 1 Corinthians 6 says this, verse 19. Or do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price. So glorify God in your body. God is using the church to display not only his holiness and righteousness to the world around us, but also his goodness. There's a tremendous verse in Psalm 145.8 that we should be able to display not only among ourselves, but to the world in general. And that is, uh, the Lord is gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love. Okay, what David is doing, what is he doing when he says this? He is looking up at God so that God's word and the Lord himself establishes a righteous standard for David. And when chaos comes and the foundations crumble, evil, wickedness, and sin infiltrate everything. And we're seeing it infiltrate the church. There's all kinds of confusion. People don't know what sin is anymore. Uh, in fact, they glory in their shame. Okay, we have to have that righteous standard uh, as we look to him. God is holy and righteous, and he will judge in holiness and righteousness. Uh, the second part of why he looks is because God is on his throne. God, what is that saying? He will not only judge, he is in control. David looks to God because God is not only holy, he is in control. Uh, Isaiah 46.10, Behold, I have created, I have determined the end from the beginning. Psalm 33.10 and 11, He frustrates the plans of the people. He confuses the counsel of the nations, but his purpose remains forever. Okay. He's in control. We get this also from Psalm 11:4, <clears throat> when he says his eyes see and his eyelids test the children of men. He goes in a little more detail about that in verse 5. His eyes see is a picture of his omniscience. There is nothing that escapes him. I hate to tell you this, but he knows what you're thinking. And he knows why you're thinking it. And he knows what your motives are. And he knows what your intentions are. And he knows what your actions are. Nothing escapes him. 
And he is omnipresent. He is with us always and around us. Yeah. So he is in control. David says, I'm going to take refuge in him because he's holy and he is my righteous standard among the evil about me. And he is on the throne. He is in control. Okay, now, uh, let me suggest, too, what does it mean, then, to take refuge in God? Okay, it doesn't mean run and hide. Now, what it can mean, and we see this in, the, uh, uh, in various places in the psalm, it can mean taking refuge for protection, uh, for provision. Um, but I want to tell you that in the context of when the foundations are being destroyed, it means that, protection and uh, provision. But it's much broader than that in the context of this psalm. Uh, the, and what exactly does uh, taking refuge in God mean? It means to trust him. The word refuge uh, really refers to trusting in him. Uh, a, some of the translations of Psalm 11.1 uh, 1 will say, in God I trust. So refuge and trust in these contexts are the same thing. A beautiful uh, verse that would really fit taking refuge in God is Proverbs 5, 3, 5. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. Uh, and then it goes on in the next verse. Verse 6 says, in all your ways, acknowledge him and he will make straight your paths. So when I take refuge in God, I trust in him with all my heart. Now, I will tell you that's a process. Uh, you don't say on Monday, I'm going to trust in God with all my heart, and Tuesday you got it down. As we go through problems, that's how we learn to trust in him with all of our heart. That's when we pick up, uh-oh, I'm relying on my own understanding. Uh, we learn to trust in him with all of our heart. How do we then take refuge in the context of Psalm 11? One, we recognize our total weakness. We understand, <clears throat> excuse me, we understand that we are totally dependent on God. The good news is he's totally dependable. Okay, 2 Corinthians uh, 12 9 and 10, I'm just going to summarize it for you. Paul says, uh, I will glory in my weakness. When I am weak, I am strong. In my weakness, God perfects his power. Okay, so you start by recognizing you're utterly dependent on him. Secondly, you humble yourself under the mighty hand of God. By humble, it means submit. 1 Peter 5, 6 and 7 Humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God that in due time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Uh, so that's the second one. And then the third one is present yourselves. Uh, Hosea mentioned this, I think, uh, but present yourselves, present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable. And then finally, John 14, 15, if you love me, you will obey my commandments. You cannot take 
refuge in God and be disobedient. So you, you are going to have to be obedient to what he says. Now, what's that going to do? It's not going to be running and hiding. He is going to turn you around and we are going to face what's going on in his strength. The world right now, our nation is part of it. This nation, the world right now, can be compared to the Titanic. It's going down, folks. Our job is not to play shuffleboard. Our job is to get as many people in the lifeboats as we can. And that's what God would have in mind uh, for us. I want to suggest something to you. Um, and I'm going to say this. The church can become a place of refuge for the lost, for the hurting, for the needy. And, and it is because we are the church. <clears throat> but let me suggest something to you in terms of what Psalm 11 means by I take refuge. The early church understood that. Uh, let's turn to Acts 4. And we're going to read verses 23 uh, through 31. And don't worry, we'll be out of here by 1.30, no problem. <laughs> I see people leaving now. Um, what's happened? What's the context here of this little chapter in Acts, Acts 4? It's a pretty significant chapter. Peter and John have been arrested for preaching and teaching about Christ. Jesus and the resurrection. That's what really did it. They are brought up before the Sanhedrin. That is the Supreme Court of Israel. And they demand an explanation. And it says, Peter, filled with the Holy Spirit, basically says, you, pointing to the Sanhedrin, you crucified the Lord of glory. There is only one name in heaven under which we may be saved, Christ Jesus. Now, that's pretty good for Peter, who a few weeks earlier wouldn't admit to a serving girl that she even knew Jesus. But he was broken in the process of denying Jesus and later filled with the Holy Ghost. And that's what happens. It produces boldness. Okay, the Sanhedrin says to him and John, do not preach in the name of Jesus again. Do not teach or preach in the name of Jesus. Okay, that, why is that so significant? And they say, whether we obey, you know, we have to obey God, not you. Why is that significance? Because a violation of a direct order from the Sanhedrin could carry with it capital punishment result. So they go back to the church and they tell them what the Sanhedrin has said. The members of the church understand what the implications of that are. And so they pray together. Let's pick up with verse 23. Because I want you to see how closely this really tracks David. Verse 23. When they were released, they went to their friends and reported what the chief priests and elders had said to them. And when they heard it, they lifted up their voices together to God and said, Sovereign Lord, who made the heaven and the earth and the sea and everything in them, who through the mouth of our father David, your servant, said by the Holy Spirit, Why did the Gentiles rage and the people's plot in vain? The kings of the earth set themselves and the rulers were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed. Okay, let me stop right there with, with that part of the prayer. Notice 
that they are going to take refuge in the Lord and the way they are going to begin to do it is exactly the way that David did. They are first going to declare God is in control. They quote right off the bat, they say right off the bat, you created the heavens and the earth. That means you've got control. On top of that, the nations take counsel against you, against you and your anointed. That's a statement that God has control of the nations. And we're going to see in just a minute the way in which he has control. He actually uses nations that are opposed to him to carry out his will. Now, I want to suggest to you in a different way that the church has got David's perspective. And let me use the example uh, I like to use of David. In 1 Samuel 17, Israel was at war with the Philistines. Nothing unusual for Israel in 1 Samuel. In the middle of the battle lines being drawn up, this great big guy named Goliath steps out between the battle lines. And I understand that he was about nine feet tall. Uh, he could have played for the Lakers any time. <laughs> and he challenged, he's huge, his armor, his everything, his, his arms are, his weapons are huge. And he challenges Israel and he says, send out somebody to, to fight me. If he wins, we'll surrender. If I win, you surrender. And nobody would come near him. Nobody would step out until David happened to be there and heard the challenge. And David's perspective is this. He says, who is this uncircumcised Philistine? Now, when he used that term, he brought theology into it. Who challenges the armies of not Saul, but the living God. Okay, what's David's perspective? David understands that this battle is not between David and Goliath. This is not Goliath against David. This is Goliath against God. And I am God's instrument. Okay? The church in this prayer has the same perspective. It's not the Sanhedrin against us the church. It's the Sanhedrin against God. And we are his servants and instruments. Okay? Let me tell you something. It's the same today. It's not the hostility of the culture in the world against us. It's the hostility of the culture in the world against God. And we are God's instruments and servants. They understood that. We should understand that. Okay, now let's look. Uh, let's look at verse 27 because this is another example of how God controls. For truly in this city there were gathered together against the Lord and against his anointed, against your holy servant Jesus, whom you anointed, both Herod and Pontius Pilate, along with the Gentiles and the peoples of Israel, to do what? to do whatever your hand and your plan had predestined to take place. You see where their perspective is and, and where they're coming from and how do they deal with it? They say, and now, Lord, look upon their threats and grant to your servants to continue to speak your word with all boldness while you stretch out your hand to heal and signs and wonders were performed are performed through the name of your holy servant Jesus 
And when they had prayed, the place in which they were gathered together was shaken, and they were filled with the Holy Spirit and continued to speak the word of God with boldness. That, I would suggest to you, is what I take refuge in God means and involves when the foundations are being destroyed. Uh, one thing that I have found uh, somewhat interesting, uh, and that is that um, the, um, and this is incidentally what the early church did, is what we need to do. Uh, and in the Psalms, uh, fairly, no, several times, you will see a statement, arise, O God. Uh, the best one I can think of is Psalm 68.01. Let God arise and his enemies be scattered. Let all who hate you flee from you. Okay, that arise, O God, is seen in a number of the Psalms. Psalm 4 is a good example. Uh, that is a battle cry. Arise, O God, and let your enemies be scattered. It's a battle cry. Where did they get it in Psalms? They got it from Moses in Numbers 10, 33. Whenever God told them to move the ark, they didn't move until God said, all right, we're moving the ark. When they would move the ark, each time that happened, Moses would stand there and he would say, let God arise and your enemies be scattered that all who hate you flee from you. Okay. That was a battle cry. In Psalms, they knew that to use that as a battle cry. Let me suggest a battle cry for us today. And that would be, let, let, let's, just, let's just adopt something like that if we could. Uh, and let us say, arise, O Lord, Jesus Christ. And, uh, and before I go to that, let me say something. This is very important. I'm sorry, I skipped something. The people who are unbelievers, people are not our enemies. They are captives of the enemy. First, 2 Samuel 2, 24 and 25 says that. Jesus said, I came to free the captives. They are captives of the devil. They are not our enemies. They are the devil's instruments and pawns. Okay, I'll keep that in mind. Now, here's the battle cry that I would suggest that we use today. Arise, O Lord Jesus Christ, and let your enemy be scattered. As we liberate the captives filled with the Holy Spirit and speaking the word boldly, I would suggest we adopt a battle cry. Now, what's going to happen when that happens? The foundations may be destroyed, but God will establish a new foundation. Okay, let's pray. It's time for me to quit. It's 1.30. I want to use as a doxology in closing my prayer that uh, one that's one of my favorites. In fact, I was converted by listening to Stuart Briscoe preach on it. Uh, and it's become one of my favorite verses. 
So it's in Ephesians uh, 3, 20 and 21. So let's pray. And before we pray, incidentally, um, if I can turn that on, and I can't seem to do it. If you're new or you'd like to meet with an elder down here or, or me, um, there we go, I think. There it is. Uh, come to this corner down here, or if you need to ask questions or anything of anybody, go to the corner in the far back. But let's pray. Oh, Lord, we acknowledge that the foundations are being destroyed. We see chaos all around, and yet we choose to take refuge in you. Lord, we know and acknowledge that you are in absolute control. Lord Jesus, we ask that you pour out the Holy Spirit on us, that we may, as your servants, as your instruments, begin to speak the word with boldness, the word being the gospel, and that youth using us may set millions of captives free to your honor and glory. And we ask it in Jesus' name. And now unto him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we ask or think according to the power at work within us. In him being glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen.